If you have been keeping up with the saga and you came today to find out whether or not I married Lisa, <laughs> I'm going to bring it to the, <laughs> the conclusion. So I had graduated and I was without a prospect of a job. I had graduated Bible college without being married, which was a cardinal sin. Uh, nobody wants to hire a 21-year-old single youth pastor because they don't want you dating the students. And um, I called my friend and I said, hey, I want to come to Sacramento while you're on your internship. And the reality was the only motivating factor for me was that I wanted to be near Lisa again. And if there was a hope of saving this dream, of saving this thing that I believed in my heart of hearts was really God's gift to me, then I needed to do something. I needed to get from where I was back to where the dream was. And I did. I moved out and I literally had nowhere to live. I had no car. I really didn't have any money to speak of. I just had the clothes that I brought with me. And I wanted it to work so bad that I took the only job that was available to me, which was working for my ex-girlfriend's father at one of his pharmacies. And I didn't have a car. And he sold me one. And... I knew that he was trying to work all the angles because I think he wanted me to marry his daughter. And this was not helping my cause with Lisa. I swear I want nothing to do with her other than work for her dad and buy a car from her dad and be financially obligated to him. And so Lisa and I began to not by choice really, I mean I wanted to be with her, she didn't want to be with me, but my friend Brad, he started dating Lisa's sister. And therefore, we were sort of forced to be together. So we would go out on dates together, and Lisa and I would just be awkwardly there as the, as the third and fourth wheel, I guess. And we just sort of maybe started tolerating each other, and there was a real awkwardness between us. And Finally, that started to thaw, and we started to spend more time voluntarily together. And there was one night when we were driving around. Remember, this is pre-cell phone days, and we were looking for Brad and Julie. We wanted to hang out, and we couldn't find them. We didn't know where they were at. Where they were at. We, we, uh, there was no way to really call them. So we just started driving to all the places we thought they might be, and we didn't find them. So we ended up back at the church parking lot. And I pulled into the pastoral parking lot and I pulled into one of the spots and her and I began to just sit there and talk and we talked and we talked and we talked and we talked for hours and it felt like the magic that we first experienced when we spent that week of camp together where we could not get enough of each other, where we knew that we were meant for each other and I felt it again and I just thought, I'm going to go for it. And I said... Listen, the truth is that I've dated someone for a long, long time, almost four years, and I've 
also gone through the season of just dating somebody different every different night of the week. And, and I don't want either of those. The next person I date, I'm going to marry. And I don't want to date anyone else but you. And so without ever having actually taken her on a date, I sort of proposed to her. <laughs> but she said, okay. And we began to date. And three months later, three months later, I asked her to marry me. And I did it. And of course, uh, the most theatrical possible way, there was a Christian artist who was very big at the time, and he was coming into concert, and he was there at Capitol, and I still had some friends on staff that I could call in favors, and I asked, hey, could you get the artist to call her and I up on stage so I can ask her to marry me in front of 3,000 people? And uh, they said, Sure. And uh, I met the artist beforehand, and he did a great job. He, he said, hey, before I do this next song, which is, you know, the, the one that you're hearing on the radio all the time, he goes, I want to ask for Lisa Gallegos and Chris Young to come to the stage. And the spotlight turned and came down and was shining on us. And I shot up with a huge smile on my face, and Lisa sat there not moving. And I said, that's us. That's, he just said our names. We've got to go. And she just sat there. And I was like, seriously, everyone's waiting on us. And she was in complete shock. And her sister, who had been holding the ring, handed me the ring. And we walked up there. And uh, in front of everybody, I put the ring on the wrong hand but apparently it's still legal. We were still engaged. <laughs> but that is not where the story ends. Because the relationship, as magical and as happy as it was between her and I, not everybody was embracing the relationship. Her sister, after her and Brad had broken up, I think associated a lot of the pain from that relationship ending with me. And she was not a fan of this anymore. And Lisa's parents who, funny enough, I just apologized to the other day <laughs> as I realized that I had come and done my internship when Lisa was two or three weeks out of high school. She was 18 years old. And here she is falling in love with some guy they don't know and who's just come out from Missouri and is going back and they're worried about their daughter's heart being broken, about some guy they don't know. And then I show back up and after just three months of dating and not really getting to know them well at all, I ask their daughter to marry me and her sister, sister she's closest to, has turned on me viciously. And it went downhill from there, and we fought and fought and fought to, to justify this relationship to everyone. And it felt like nobody believed in this except us. And I don't know, maybe they had a really good point. 
I mean, I think about my kids at 19 and 18, and I think there's no way I would have thought they were ready for that. And so maybe with really good cause and really good hearts and a perspective different than mine, they were standing against something I was trying to claim and something I was trying to experience and have fulfilled in my life. They didn't believe in my dream. They didn't share my dream. They didn't want my dream. They kept trying to get us to postpone the wedding and postpone the wedding and postpone the wedding. And it was painful for Lisa and I. She'd call me and she'd cried herself to sleep because her mom had been in her room just questioning whether she should be doing this and her sister was fighting her on this and it seemed that nobody was standing with us. And then at the rehearsal dinner, the night before we got married, her parents pulled us aside and they said that we had their blessing, which was bittersweet. It it was such a painful season for us to get to that point, but they had made it there as well. Jesus, when he told his disciples, as they witnessed him, deliver this boy from this demonic oppression, this father begged for their help and they could not deliver and then he begged Jesus and Jesus did that instantaneously and there was relief and healing and Jesus said this in Matthew 17, 20. He said, you don't have enough faith is the problem. He says, I'm telling you the truth. If you had faith, even as small as a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it would move. Nothing would be impossible. Jesus is showing what the impossible thing is. Jesus is saying, you, you don't have enough faith to do this. This, this thing that you just had the opportunity to do, the reason it didn't happen is because you didn't have the faith to match that. And I'm telling you that even with something that's so insignificantly small like a mustard seed, you could do something that's so unimaginably impossible. And I started wondering, though, isn't it funny how we, in our visualization of all that, we imagine the mountain being the thing that needs to move. I mean, it is what Jesus says, you can move this mountain from here to there. It's always our imagination of does the mountain come forward or move back? Does it slide over to the side? Does it pick up and we throw it off into the sea? In our imagination, where does the mountain need to go in order for us to get around it or get through it or get past it? Because that's why you move a mountain. You don't do it to flex. You don't do it to, to, to entertain people. You don't do it for any other reason than the mountain is standing in the way of you getting to the other side. And then I thought, what if it's us, though? What if we're there? In, what if it's our attitude and our faithlessness and our disobedience and our stubbornness and our fear and our emotions and our unhealthiness? What if those are the impossible things that need to move? What if it's okay for the mountain to stay where it's at? Because if the goal is to get over it, around it, through it, underneath it, past it, what difference does it make if the mountain moves or we move? Because we stand in front of mountains and say, that's impossible, I can't get over that. It's too long, I can't get around it. It's too dense 
to go through it. I don't have the time to get past it. So it's just as impossible for us to move around the mountain as it is for the mountain to move. So what if it's us that needs to move? So this has been a tough week uh, for a lot of people. Um, we had you guys praying last week for uh, Janelle Moffat, who's one of our youth leaders and just been a really faithful, incredible part of Summit for a long, 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 long time. And she's young. And she was admitted into the hospital with um, sepsis and pneumonia. And uh, they detected a life-threatening heart issue. And they, at this point, still don't even know where the infection originated. Um, what's causing some of the issues. They're trying to run tests, but it's nearly impossible because uh, she's been intubated, which means that there's a machine breathing for her, right? Um, she's been under heavy, heavy sedation because when she is conscious or semi-conscious, she tries to pull everything out. And um, she got to the part where she went into cardiac arrest and they had to break her sternum, giving her CPR. And the doctors were beginning to prepare everybody for this becoming a hopeless situation and said, it's possible we can do that one more time, but there won't be a third time. We can't save her if we have to give CPR. She simply couldn't withstand that. And it looked as if it wasn't going to have a good outcome. And she is nowhere near through the woods. But things have progressed and they're better. Now for another family, um, Kevin and Brandy Lautzenheiser, Brandy's stepdad, Tom Kidder, who was just here a few weeks ago. They live in Forest Hill but come down quite a bit and this is their church home when they do. And Tom's a gentle, sweet man. And began experiencing uh, these uncontrollable tremors, maybe triggered by the cancer treatment, maybe not, but they couldn't get him under control and they admitted him into the hospital with the belief that they could possibly get those under control, medicate, diagnose, and it progressed so quickly and without the ability to treat it. He's on hospice care and likely will pass in the next couple days. And then I got an email from the broker of the building owners. And he had laid out how we had presented the numbers to build out the church. so that we could occupy it for the next 10 years as our home. And we expected some initial pushback. And so I said, well, listen, that number doesn't have to be final. There's a lot of areas where we feel like we could go in and really, really get it down. I mean, there's not much fat there at all, but we would trim whatever it would take to get us in there. And we could make improvements down the road. But 
we, we really didn't put any fat in to begin with. So that number won't move a lot. It, it, it can move some, but it won't move a lot. And they came back with the amount that they would contribute. And there's such a vast chasm, <laughs> an unachievably large distance between what we can contribute and what they can contribute without us putting the church in financial peril and going under in two years because we can't pay for the building that we moved into. And so with that, our conversation with the owner has come to an end, at least for now. Uh, the negotiations have come to an end. There's nowhere to move beyond this unless miraculously they were to come back to us and completely change their approach. So it's been a challenging week. And um, yesterday, I told Lisa, I said, I, I just don't have it in me to do a message. Um, not like I normally do. So if you're new here, I promise I'm a better communicator than this. All right? I, it's just been a really, really hard week. And what I realized was, I got the news about the building before um, things really had turned badly for these other two situations. And then someone else in the church called me and someone that's here today and said that their husband had been diagnosed with a very difficult diagnosis that's going to change and challenge their lives uh, to an immeasurable degree. And I just thought, man, this is all so much more important than real estate. I thought, these people don't care about whether Summit Church is in this building or that building or this building. What they do care about is whether they can trust and lean on a community of people that they hope love them enough to go through this journey of pain and hurt and fear and all the things we experience when we get these kind of life-shattering moments, these circumstances that upturn everything. We could not, because if any one of them could trade everything they have to get back the people that they love, to undo these diagnoses, to change the news that has changed their lives, they would do it in a heartbeat. And if I were to sit down with them and say, but did you realize that we're not going to be able to go into this building? Can I tell you how insignificant that would feel to them? And rightfully so. And so what it helped me recognize is something we already know but need reminded of when we're standing up against a real estate mountain or something else that circumstantially feels significant in the moment until people are involved, until humans are involved. 
And what I realized was the most important thing about this church, about Summit, is you. And I'll take you anywhere. I don't care where we sit together. I don't care where we worship together. I don't care where we commune with God together or learn God's word together or connect together as long as we're together, as long as we're about the mission of who God wants us to be and that we care about a community that's looking for hope and waiting for a community like us to stand alongside of them while they're going through something just like this. But they don't have the hope. They don't have the relationship with people who pray regularly, who know God's word and can assure them that God has not abandoned them or left them alone with a community of people who will lend their faith to them when they don't have enough to stand on their own legs of faith. There is a community of 50,000 people around us who don't have that, and we do. So I want to share three really quick things with you. If you want to get up, get over, get through, get around, or pass a mountain, if that's you, then you have to be ready to press forward when others want to go backwards. There's almost nothing more intimidating than facing something that's such a overwhelming and intimidating obstacle that others begin to step back and go, I thought I could have your back, but I don't think I can do this with you. So when we talk about Israel and the Israelites, remember they weren't this country that they're now located. That happened in the 40s. They were a nomadic body of tribes, 12 tribes, made up of men and women and kids and grandparents and aunts and uncles and people who fought with each other and people who owned things and some who owned more than others. And they were just like us, different time, different region, different culture, but they were just people that we clumped together like we would say the Americans. And the Americans did this, the Americans did Imagine if the nation that we call America was nomadic and we just moved all around these lands. We were up in Canada and we were down in Central America and we were down in South America and we just moved everywhere. And all the trouble and problems that that would cause. Now, imagine if we were, as a whole people, enslaved for 400 years by another nation. And then this guy comes along who was raised as an Egyptian, who was an Egyptian by culture, by look, by name, by everything but birthright. He was a Jew only by birthright. He was an Israelite only by birthright. And God calls him out of this kingdom of Egypt to stand and represent God as he goes to get the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to release the nation of Israel out so that they could occupy the land that God had promised generations before. So here's a guy they don't trust, doing what they never asked him to do, getting Pharaoh to do exactly what God asked him to do, 
getting them out and they're leaving behind everything. There's a sense of joy maybe that they don't have to be in slavery anymore, but this overwhelming fear of the future. They don't know what this promised land looks like, sounds like. So Moses, the Egyptian turned Jew, takes a representative from each one of the tribes and he says, you will go spy out the land for 40 days and bring back a report. They do that. And they all come back with the same exact report. This place is incredible. It's so huge. They had a cluster of grapes that it took two men on a, on a pole to carry this cluster. of the, the land was overflowing with provision and blessing. This looked exactly as God promised it would, as a place that would provide for their need in abundance. All 12 spies gave a report. 10 of them, 10 of them saw what all 12 of them saw and said, the people there, the Anakim tribe, not Anakin Skywalker, Anakim tribe, they are huge and they will eat us up. They will grind our bones into dust. Two of them, Caleb and Joshua, saw the exact same things, the exact same people, and said, if this is God's promise for us, then he'll help us overcome that. We should go now. We should fight for this. This belongs to us. It's funny to me that they both saw the exact same thing and had completely different perspectives. I don't know if it was their past at having felt defeated their whole lives. Having someone crush their dreams and their hopes and the idea of a future that was any better than the future they had, but they were in a position to want anything other than to move forward. James 1, 2 through 4 says this, don't run from tests and hardships, brothers and sisters, as difficult as they are, you'll ultimately find joy in them if you embrace them. Your faith will blossom under pressure and teach you true patience as you endure. And true patience brought on by endurance will then equip you to become complete in the long journey and cross that finish line, mature, complete, and wanting nothing. This was exactly the perspective. This is Jesus' brother, James, by the way. Jesus was the one who had taught, you're going to experience pain in life. You're going to experience difficulty. He called it tribulation. There's going to be pain in your life. But he says, I want you to have peace because I've overcome everything in this world. James says, you should look at hardship as a thing you should welcome because hardship's going to develop something in you. It's going to challenge a patience in you that says, I'm going to wait on God to be God in this moment. And while you do that, while you wait, your faith begins to increase. Listen to what happens, Numbers 14. This is what happens in the conversation that they have is they're trying to convince Moses, of what the whole nation should do. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, members of the scouting party. Remember, they're unknown at this time. This is the first time we're seeing their name. Ripped their clothes and 
addressed to the assembly. That was a sign of like mourning and anguish. People of Israel, the land we walked through and scouted out is a very good land, very good indeed. If God is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land that flows, as they say, with milk and honey, and he'll give it to us. Please just don't rebel against God and don't be afraid of those people. Why, we'll have them for lunch. They'll have no protection and, if God, and God is on our side. So don't be afraid of them. But up in arms now, the entire community was talking of hurling stones at them. The craziest part of that is that 12 people can look at the same circumstances, the same people, the same situation, and have two completely different approaches to how to move next. And the even crazier part is how easily everyone else can be convinced to turn and run. If you know the story, they said we'd be better off going back to Egypt as slaves than to die out here. They began to view the promises of God as a bigger threat to them than living in Egypt as property. And there stood two men who just said, what are we doing God said he would give it to us, so why don't we just take it? You see, the mountain didn't need to move. There was nothing standing in between them and the promised land except them. And if you want to get up over through, around, or past a mountain, then you have to be ready to freely give what others won't let go of. So, at this time, Moses had died, and Joshua was now leading the Israelites. Because if you know the story, God was so furious at Moses and the Israelites for showing no faith and believing the, the I'll say it, the false report, believing the fearful report, that he said, for every day you were in spying out the land, seeing the blessings that I would have given given, seeing the prosperity that I prepared for you, seeing what I would give to you if you would simply walk forward in faith. He said, for every single day, you will wander in the desert for a year. So they would wander for 40 years. And if you ever see the map of how the Israelites wandered, they literally, it was like, um, it was like, everybody see Blair Witch Project? Really good Christian wholesome movie. Um, <laughs> Get the kids, gather them around, get some popcorn. And um, it's like that. It's like they couldn't escape the woods. And they just kept going around and around. For 40 years, they wandered. Well, they were getting ready to go into that land and possess all that God had promised them because the only two that were allowed to go in and possess that land were Caleb and Joshua. 40 years, though, they had to wander with all of those who believed the the negative report. And here's what it says in Joshua 6, 17 through 19. The city and everything in it must be set apart to the, uh, set apart to the Lord to be destroyed. But the prostitute Rahab and all those with her in her house must be spared. That's because she hid the spies we sent. Everybody remembers Rahab, the, uh, while, while they were spying it out, she hid all of them and uh, they were trying to kill them and she hid all of them. You can go to the next one. 
but keep away from the things that have been set apart to the Lord. If you take any of them, you will be destroyed. And you will bring trouble on the camp. Now, this is all of those who get to come in. These are the kids. These are the, this is the other generation. The generation that doubted they died, these are their kids. You understand that they might have been facing some doubtful challenges themselves, being raised by people who turned their back on God. And you will bring trouble on the camp of Israel. You will cause it to be destroyed. And the silver and the gold is holy. It is to be set apart for the Lord. So are all the things made out of bronze and iron. Those things must be added to the treasure and kept in the Lord's house. So I want to show you something. There are two things that are set apart for the Lord. Things that will destroy you and those around you. And things that will build on the promises of God. There were things in that camp. They said every single thing must be destroyed. Hold only aside the things that can go into the treasury and be used to fulfill the promises of God. Everything else must be destroyed. And there was a promise that it would bring pain and sorrow and destruction to them if they did exactly the opposite of what God said to do. I want you to hear this. You and I are always in danger of holding on to two things that don't belong to us. Holding on to things that are destructive to us, but they seem valuable to us. There's a beauty to them somehow. And so we hang on to things that are destroying us, and then we hang on to treasure that has been set apart for God's promises to be fulfilled in our life. Joshua 7.13 says this, Now go and make the people pure. Tell them, make yourselves pure. Prepare because God had told Joshua, someone in the camp has held something back. And he called them to do this. Make yourselves pure. Prepare for tomorrow. The Lord, the God of Israel, says that some people are keeping things that he commanded to be destroyed. You'll never be able to defeat your enemies until you throw away those things. He told them, if you go into battle and you've done any of this, you'll, you'll be destroyed. And they had just gone into battle with the city, and they were defeated soundly. Even though they had superior forces, superior men, they were wounded badly. Now, I want to read you a passage of Scripture in 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 8. I know I'm jumping around, I'm moving quickly, but this is on purpose. But I say this to encourage your generosity, the one who plants little harvests, the one who plants little harvests little, and the one who plants plenty harvests plenty. Giving grows out of the heart. Otherwise, you reluctantly grumbled yes, only because you felt you had to or because you couldn't say no, but this isn't the way God wants it. For we know that God loves a cheerful giver. God's ready to overwhelm you with more blessings than you could ever imagine so that you'll always be taken care of in every way and you'll have more than enough to share. Doesn't this sound exactly like the promises that were made to the people of Israel? He said, don't hold back that which has been dedicated to God. Give Set that apart for him and I will provide for you generously beyond your ability to even contain all those blessings. And when you and I get ourselves in a place where we're holding on to that which destroys us because we value it as much as the treasures that we trust and put our faith in more than we do God, 
that is a recipe for us to continue to be soundly defeated. Now listen to this passage in Galatians 6.10. Right now, therefore, every time we get the chance, let us work for the benefit of all, starting with the people closest to us in the community of faith. In other words, we have to be in a place where we think about others besides ourselves. That we understand that when we hold on to destructive things, it doesn't just destroy us. It destroys our family. It destroys those who look to us. It destroys those who trust us. It destroys those who love us. It destroys the community that we're connected to. I mean, emotionally and spiritually and relationally, things continue to be broken because we continue to hang on. And he says, if you're going to begin to do something and release things, then begin to release it in the community that's going to most benefit from it. Paul was constantly having to teach the church, people's needs don't get met magically. You have to be a part of that. You have to take the plenty in your life. Can I tell you this? If I have three Twinkies and you have no Twinkies, I'm rich in Twinkies in comparison to you. I'm not rich in comparison to the person who bought a case of Twinkies on Amazon. I'm poor in comparison to them. But that's not the relationship I'm engaged with. I only have to look to the person who has fewer Twinkies than me. And if I give you a Twinkie, I have not diminished my wealth of Twinkies. What I've done is I've opened the portal for someone who goes, I like what that guy does with his Twinkies. I've got a case of Twinkies. I shall give him five Twinkies for the generosity he has bestowed by giving one Twinkie. 33% of his Twinkies he gave. And I will give him five Twinkies, which is only actually 3% of the Twinkies I currently possess. You see, that's the community. That's the, that's the economy of God. Can I tell you what happened to Achan, the man who stood and he said, I've sinned. It's me. They, they, they searched everybody's tent and they found that Achan had buried this robe and silver and He'd just taken things that were beautiful to him and he wanted silver and gold. He wanted to feel secure. He wanted to feel all the things that you and I want to feel. And before we go judging Achan, it may be worth asking yourself if you aren't yourself holding back from God. I, I will say something, and this isn't meant to, I, I really don't want you to hear it defensively or or. or, or with any sense of condemnation, but can I tell you that the, the, the chasm that stands between us and possessing that building is a financial one. We neither had enough set aside, nor do we have enough coming in and offering to sustain the demands of occupying that building. And I guess it would take faith on some level if I stood here and I said, we are going to get this building and we'll be in by Christmas. I, I don't know that it's maybe really faith for us to start giving to that. 
because we would already have been, we're going to possess it. It's already a done deal. It's the giving when there is, it's the believing, it's the praying, it's the sacrificing, it's the moving towards the destination we don't, it's knowing that on the other side of the mountain is the promise of God without being able to see it yet. It's our ability to be able to give to the community that we're in. And, and, and if you're new and you're just like, oh God, here we go, talking about money, I, all I can say is, Stop. Stop being weird about money being talked about here, but your kids walking around door to door selling stuff so they can go to camp or play on a volleyball team. Nobody faults that, right? Like for your gym collecting money, like, I can't even believe they're asking me to pay for this. This is a community in which it's called the storehouse for a reason. It's needs are being met. People are being served and we believe in something bigger than ourselves that it's not just to get this reciprocity of getting blessing back into our life, but we're giving to something that overflows into a community where we're giving Twinkies to those who aren't giving Twinkies because they, they aren't even part of the community. And we say this is what it means to be a follower of Christ as we understand how to be loving and generous and benevolent when it doesn't benefit us at all. I've already gone um, way over, and I'm, I'm actually probably just going to maybe skip the third thing. What's really cool is, though, that Caleb, at 84 years old, went back to Joshua and said, hey, Moses promised me 40 years ago before he screwed everything up that I could have the Hebron mountain region. I want it. I have as much faith as I did back then and I'm as strong as I ever was. And Joshua said, okay. And it said that Caleb went and took the mountain. He defeated those who lived there. That was where the Anakim were. And he defeated them soundly and he took what was promised to him, even though he had to wait for it, even though the disobedience of others had caused a delay, he was not about to let his life end without claiming the promise. And um, if you have to dismiss yourself and leave because uh, you have to be somewhere, I understand, but I just want to take a minute, if you will, just close your eyes because um, I want you to think about not what mountain stands in front of you, but what mountain is inside of you. Um, fear or doubt, insecurity, anger, selfishness, distrust. What is it that can't allow you to see the promises of God the way Joshua and Caleb did that make us turn and walk back to that which is familiar because we're so afraid of that which we don't know? 
And then I want us to, in just a second, kind of bring this thing inside of us, this mountain that's taking up all the space that should be filled by faith and generosity and, 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 and willingness and readiness to, to run forward into the battle because we trust God that much. And declare to him that he has our whole mind, our whole heart, our whole lives. I want to give you just a second to do that. For thou, O Lord, art high above all the earth. Thou art exalted far above all God. For thou, O Stand up and sing this. And I exalt thee. I exalt thee. Oh, I exalt thee. Oh, Lord. Yes, I exalt thee, I exalt thee, yes, I exalt thee, oh, We're going to sing that again, but I want you to now think about where God deserves to be in your life. And maybe where God's been kept in your life because you've allowed that thing, the, the Aiken's treasure that you've hidden in your tent, the silver and gold that has been dedicated to God that's been held back, the fear of facing an enemy that you think stands between you and the promises of God and believing that that enemy is bigger than God is. And now declaring to God, you are bigger than all those things. I lift you higher than all those things. Let's start at the verse one more time. For thou, O Lord, art high above all the earth. And thou art exalted far above all God. 
And now, O Lord, you are high above all the earth. And thou art exalted far above all God. Now with your voice lifted high, tell him, I exalt thee, we exalt thee, Lord. I exalt thee above our fears and doubts. I exalt thee, oh Lord. Let him hear you sing. I exalt. God, we commit our future, our days and our minutes, our mountains, our Hebrons, our Anakims. We commit Canaan and Jericho and all the lands that over the decades they possessed as the promised land. Nazareth and Jerusalem Mount Carmel, all the places we don't think about that took them battle after battle. And year after year, they didn't possess in a moment, they didn't possess in a day. They possessed over lifetimes, over generations. You delivered your promise to kids and grandkids and great-grandkids because of the faith of the generation before. And I pray over Summit in Jesus' name that we would, we would set in motion a faith that's inherited by our kids and our grandkids and their kids so that your blessings, your favor can be experienced year after year and decade after decade and century after century. And that it's not our faithlessness that sends us into wandering. It's not our holding back that curses the camp. But rather, God, we stand with the faith of Joshua and Caleb and declare if God is for us, we should go now and take it all. It belongs to us. We just can't rebel against him. We can't turn our backs to him. We have to put our faith in him. And I pray that over every person in this room. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. amen.